You may be seated. Well, good morning, church family. I am very, very excited to be with you this morning because today we are studying, starting a new sermon series, walking through a new book in the Bible together. So that is always exciting, and I'm excited, so I hope you are too. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Esther. We're going to be in Esther chapter 1 this morning. Um, if you don't know where Esther is, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, go toward the middle of your Bible. It's right before Job and the Psalms, and you'll find the book of Esther. Now, as I said yet last week, um, the book of Esther is one of the most dramatic and action-packed books in all of the Bible. It's got an incredible storyline of how a young woman is raised up to a position of power and influence in order to save all of her people from almost certain death. It's an intriguing story. But as we begin, I want to give you some very basic background information that will hopefully give you a better sense of, of where these events fall both within history, but also within the, the broader story of Scripture as we seek to understand the revelation that God has given to each one of us. Now, for centuries, the book of Esther has has been loved by the Jewish community because at its heart it explains the beginning of what's called the Feast of Purim. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, what that is and why it's significant, why it's important. Um, but that's the Jewish community has always looked at this book and read this book regularly. But the Christian community has been a little bit different. For many, many years, the Christian community wasn't sure what to, to do with the book of Esther. That's why if you look at church history, the first seven centuries of the Christian church, 700 years, not one commentary was written about the book of Esther. You look at John Calvin, who wrote about almost anything, preached about almost anything, and he never preached through the book of Esther. You look at Martin Luther, the great theologian, and he, he kept the book of Esther at a distance. He wasn't even sure why it was included in the scriptures. It was kind of like the kryptonite to the early Christians. What do we do with this book? Let's not touch it. Why would that be the case? Well, we get an idea of the answer to that question by reading chapter 1. Powerful. The beginning of the book of Esther that you see this magnificent, powerful throne. And yet it's not the throne that we've come to expect throughout the rest of the scriptures. It's not the throne of God. In fact, as you're going to find as we study this book, the name of God, Elohim, Yahweh, any name of God, is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther. And that's why they thought, what do we even do with this? A book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. How can this be? Instead of the throne of God, instead chapter 1 is entirely focused on the very different throne, a throne of a very pagan ruler that was ruling thousands of miles from the promised land, from Jerusalem. And so this morning, I think this text makes us ask this very important question. Who really is on the throne? Who is on the throne? Who is in the throne of life? Who is on the throne of history? Well, in verse 1, if you would, let's read it together. The answer to that question seems to be clear about who's on the throne. It says these words, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. So the text makes clear that these events that we're going to be reading about in the book of Esther all took place during the reign of this king that went by the name of Ahasuerus. 
Now, you've probably never heard that name before unless you just study the Bible a lot. You don't hear that name because this man was actually more well-known for his Greek name. That was his Persian name. His Greek name is Xerxes. Now, who has heard of Xerxes? few more people, right? Xerxes was an incredibly powerful person. We're going to talk about him in a moment. I can tell you this. Almost any person in that culture of that day would have known exactly who Xerxes was because he was, number one, the most powerful man on the planet. What you need to know about this king who is sitting on the throne is that he was the most powerful man on the planet. When Xerxes was 32 years old, he inherited the entire kingdom of his father, a guy named King Darius. You see, read about him in other places of the scriptures, but King Darius on his own right was a very prolific king. He had served for about 36 years and during that time had expanded his empire that included many, many different nations. I, if you would, Will, put up on the screen, there's a map. And this map, all the red, I know it's pretty hard to see, but that entire thing is the Persian empire of King Xerxes' day. In modern day terms, it would be um, Sudan, all the way to Pakistan, all the way to modern Greece, a landmass of about 3 million miles. Now you look at that, and I want you to think about this. Imagine today one ruler, one political leader, rising up with such power that they could turn Egypt, Libya, Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan into one nation under their rule. Pretty, pretty amazing, wouldn't it be? That's exactly what had happened with King Xerxes. His kingdom was so great that all of these people who historically had fought one another, had been enemies, came under this one man's rule. The text says that he was sitting on his royal throne in Susa. Now, Susa was one of his two palaces. He had a winter home and a summer home. That'd be kind of nice, right? He would sit a throne on one of those two places. So at this point, he's in Susa. He's in the citadel, which really was the highest point of the city. So the picture we have here is the most powerful man in the world up until this point in history. There had never been an empire so affluent, so powerful, and so great as that of Xerxes. And there he is sitting on his throne in his citadel, governing the land. To many who saw him, he was nothing less than God himself. Xerxes was a man of great power. We continue to read about him in verse 3. It says these words, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So we read something else about Xerxes. What do you need to know? Well, number two, Xerxes had unlimited resources at his disposal. He had unlimited resources at his disposal. From reading the historical works of this time, there's a a great Greek historian named Herodotus, and and he gives us a lot of information about this period. But but we find that his third year, the third year of the King Xerxes, was one of great peace. There was no wars going on. In fact, Xerxes was trying to unify all of his rule, all of the different nations, so that they could go and fight the one people his father had not conquered, and that was the Athenians, the Greeks in Athens. He was putting together lots of opportunities to to bring unity and celebrate the power of Persia as they go and get ready to battle the Athenians. And so in order to do that, what does he do? It says that he threw a pretty incredible party. 
Now, for those of you that, that really got into the royal wedding and you get into all these parties, let me just say this. As great and as grandeur as those parties are, they have nothing on the party of King Xerxes that we read about in this text. I mean, this was the party to end all parties. On display, the text says, were Xerxes' military. Now, this was a group that was known to be extremely ruthless. If you have ever heard of the immortals, that was his private security force. He had 10,000 of Persia's most mighty warriors that were surrounding Xerxes at all time. Think about this. They would lay down their life for him. He would, they would fight for him. Whatever it took, they would do. And he says that these 10,000 men were around his throne. What's that a picture of? Invincibility, right? If you want to get to me, you got to get through the immortals, which I don't want to fight anybody that's named the immortals. That sounds terrifying. I want no piece of that. But that's the point. It says alongside that military were all of his elite nobles from all these different nations, speaking different languages, all of the politicians under his rule. Estimates would say that this was a party of about 15,000 people. Now imagine throwing a party for one day for 15,000 people. You've got to have pretty incredible resources. But what does the text say? How long is that party? 180 days, six months, a party for 15,000 people. Now, why would King Xerxes throw this kind of party? Is it because he's a generous king, because he loves the people? No. The text tells us exactly why he did it. It says to show the riches of his royal what? His royal glory. Glory is a worship word. His glory. He wanted to show the splendor, the pomp of his greatness. Xerxes believes he is God worthy of worship. And so he throws this party to show his unlimited supply of resources Keep that in mind as we get a glimpse of what that party entailed in verse 5. It says, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court. So the end of this 180 days, he says, for seven days, all of you people likely in the Susa that have been working, he says, now I'm going to throw a party for you. I want you to experience what all these others have experienced. It says in verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion." For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now, if you don't get the point here, the point of this entire text is extravagant wealth. Anything that he wanted, he had. I was recently, I saw an advertisement for a restaurant in New York City. And I, as I was reading this, I thought of this. But there's a restaurant in New York City that you can go and get chicken wings that have been dipped in 24-karat gold. Apparently, you can actually eat these things. It's like $1,000 was the advertisement. But they eat chicken wings that are wrapped in gold. Now, the picture is on the screen there. What I find funny is that they've got ranch dipping sauce right next to it. <laughs> Let me just take my 24-karat gold and dip it in ranch before I eat it. Now, you look at that and you think, well, why would anybody want to do that? Why would you need to do that? Because if you say, hey, I have the money to 
buy gold chicken wings. What does that say? I am different class than you. And that's what Xerxes is doing here. He's throwing this party, and it is a party that is unthinkable in that day. I mean, it says, you know, most of us would look for comfortable couches, right? That's what we're looking for in a couch. He says, you know what? I want all of my couches to be gold and silver. I don't care if they're comfortable. I just want it to be a treasure that all these other individuals, if they had it, they'd be hiding it away. I use it to sit on. Most of us would be happy with wood floors or carpeting, but not King Xerxes. What does it say? That his pavement was made of mother of pearl, of precious stones. I don't just walk on pavement. I need jewels to walk on. This is a picture of incredible wealth. It was his show to the world that says, I have made it. Anything that I want, I get. And sadly, this extended to his view of the women in his life. Uh, The Greek historian Herodotus tells us a lot about his encounters with women, how he was not a good man toward the women of his culture. He had a harem full of concubines. He had many wives, and, and he expected them to do anything that he asked them to do. Well, that extends to one wife who who he fondly cared for, a a woman named Vashti. We read about her in verse 9. It says, as his party was going on, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So again, these women, they weren't part of it. They belonged to him. He commanded them. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zetha, and Carcass. Those are some great children's names. If any of you are really seeking out a new name for your child, those are strong Carcass. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of, of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, the third thing that we see about Xerxes is that Xerxes, at least in his own mind, controlled the lives of the people in his kingdom. He owned them. He was the one that would make the events happen. He was the one that owned the circumstances. He could tell the people what to do. Now, if you think about the situation that that he was asking Vashti to enter in, it was not a good one. It's the end of a seven-day drunken fest. Men everywhere, and he wants to show off his wife. Have you ever heard the, the term trophy wife? That is literally what is happening in this text. He says, not only do I have all the wealth at my disposal, not only do I have armies at my disposal, but I have the most beautiful women at my disposal. And so he makes this command for his queen, Queen Vashti, to, to come into his presence to show off her beauty. He fully expected Vashti to obey his command. In fact, as he thought about it, I mean, literally, the word of King Xerxes was law in all of the empire. They had their whole uh, postal. They had created, in essence, the first postal service to, to reach the ends of his empire. And anything that he said went, and it couldn't be revoked. If you went against the word of King Xerxes, judgment was certain. And so he expected her to come. But it's at this point in verse 12 where the image of his power and invincibility and control, it begins to unravel. And Scripture, is, as it paints this picture, it in essence wants us to laugh. And you'll see why. Verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this, at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. 
The rest of the story, especially in, in the end of chapter 1, in essence is meant to be satire. It's meant to have God's people to, to look at this man who looks like he has all the power in the world to look at it and laugh because we realize this man who has all the power, all the control, can't even get his wife to come to a party. Maybe he's not as powerful as it seems. That's the point as we look at this text. He does not have the power he once thought he did, and this makes him very, very angry. As you read the end of chapter 1, it goes on, and he, he says, what are we going to do about this? His wise men that are around him say, you know what? If the word gets out about what Vashti has done, this is going to cause domestic disputes all throughout the empire. We've got to put an end to this. You have to get rid of Queen Vashti and replace her with someone they say is better. Look for someone better. We'll find someone better to make her queen. Well, as you come to the end of the chapter, that will lead us into chapter 2, which we'll look at next week. Now, as you come to the end, a very valid question is this. What does any of this have to do with the Bible? What do, does any of this have to do with God? As I said before, God never visibly shows up in chapter 1 or anywhere else in the book. He doesn't speak. No prophet comes and speaks on his behalf. There are no miracles in the book of presence. There's nothing supernatural that happens. There's no mention of Jerusalem or the temple or the presence of God. There's no mention of God's people in chapter 1. Other books aren't quoted. None of God's laws are given. No one repents. No one prays. Seemingly, this is just a pagan ruler in the midst of a marital conflict. So what in the world could this teach the people of God? Well, this morning... I would like to ask you one very simple question. That says, how many of the days that go on in your week, how many of your days sound more like the book of Esther than the book of Exodus when God shows up with his big miracles? I'm not asking, does your life look like you have gold couches and an immortal security service? What I'm asking is this, how many days go by and you say, I didn't see God perform a big miracle today? I didn't hear God with an audible voice. God didn't come to me in a dream or a vision. There was, I was not visited by any angels. I had storms in my life that, that didn't just disappear and the waters became calm again. I, I, I'm sick and I've not been healed. I've prayed and yet my prayer has not been answered in the visible way that I was hoping for. How many of your days are more like that than the book of Exodus where God shows up in big, miraculous ways? Perhaps in those moments you've questioned, does God even exist? Or maybe you say, I, I know God exists, I believe that, but is he paying any attention? Does he even care? Or maybe does God even lack the power to do anything about all this mess in my life? Throughout history, God's people have been facing those same questions. I don't see God in a visible manner. I don't see him working massive miracles. Where's God in the midst of my story? Well, in the midst of these questions, I would submit to you this morning that this text teaches us three very important principles that, that I just want to give to you as we begin the book. But it's going to be guiding principle throughout our study of this book. Number one is this. God is at work for the good of his people even when we cannot see it. The book of Esther is going to show us in many different ways that God is at work for the good of his people even when we cannot see it. 
I would submit this to you. God is at work all over this chapter, but it's not through the visible hand of big miracles. It is through the invisible hand of his providence. You see, the one thing that you will realize the more that you study the scriptures is that history does not proceed through circumstance or happenstance or chance. But instead, what the scriptures reveal is that behind everything is a God who is sovereign over all things. But not only is he sovereign, but this is a God who is good. That is Romans 28 says, Romans, sorry, 8.28 says, he is always at work for his own glory and for the good of his people. There is a God who reigns and rules over all peoples, times, and places, a God who is in the details of history. As you think about this text, I want you to think about this. Why did Vashti throw away her position as queen for such a futile attempt at rebellion? Why would King Xerxes make such a foolish request in the first place? He's drunk. Why did they come up with this plan that they would search through the nations to find a queen who is better than Queen Vashti? And why did it all happen right then? We could look at all those things and say, well, all of those things are chance. They're just normal human events. But the reality is every single one of those details needed to happen if Esther was going to rise up to a place of power in order to save the people of God. Now, did the people of God in that moment know that was happening? Absolutely not. They wouldn't have seen the story of Vashti and King Xerxes as having anything to do with them. They thought, what does what this pagan king and his marital conflict have to do with us? And yet, as we see the story unfold, what we're going to find is that it was these details that brought about their salvation, not just in the land of Persia, but literally all throughout the kingdom. God is at work all around us in ways that we cannot see. And I just want to encourage you today that that is how God is also working at you in your life today. You may be in a situation where you do not hear his audible voice. Maybe you have not been healed. Maybe your prayer has not been answered. You may be asking, where is God? Let me just tell you, God is working for your good. That is a promise we see out Scripture, and we're going to see how that's fulfilled in the book of Esther. The second thing that this text teaches us is this. Do not take the power and glory of this world too seriously. It's very important that you do not take the glory and power and pomp of this world too seriously. No matter how it may look in the present, the world's power and glory and fortunes are not as invincible or as long-lasting or as awe-inspiring as they may seem to us. Now, that's sometimes hard to believe, isn't it? Because glory and power and wisdom and wealth and all these things, these are things that we can see in life. These are things we can touch with our hands. We can know that they're present. We can hold on to them. But what the book of Esther shows is that these things aren't as sturdy as they may seem. The world's wisdom, the world's power, the world's possessions do not last like we think they will. They don't, we don't ever have the power that we think we do. Our vantage point of all these things lacks the divine perspective. From a limited perspective, think about this, it looked like Xerxes had all the glory and the power. From the people in Jesus' day, it looked like Rome and Caesar had all of the glory and power. To most of the people in Europe during the Third Reich, it looked like Adolf Hitler had all the glory and power. 
To those in Russia, for the greater part of the 20th century, it looked like Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union had all the glory and power. And for many today, it looks like America has all the glory and power. But friends, the power and glory and fortunes of this world are not the power and glory and fortunes that matter most. If we seek those same things that the world seeks without seeking God first, we will find that they are faulty. They do not last. In fact, I want to read Psalm chapter 2 because Psalm chapter 2 gives you this from God's view of the greatest kings of the earth. Okay, I want you to hear this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You see, Psalm chapter 2 gives us God's divine perspective of kings and all their grandeur and all their pomp and all their power. And here's what he says. In a moment's time, I am going to install my king on a holy hill. And there's going to be a day where even the greatest kings, the greatest nations, the most powerful people in the world, they are going to answer to my king. Have they stood in opposition to my king? Or have they taken refuge in my king? You see, the good news this morning is that above Xerxes and above every other modern day Xerxes, there is another king. Above the throne of Xerxes is another throne. And on it is God's unmatchable king, his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And I love what it says at the end of Psalm 2. It says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. See, I would submit a third point of application this morning, and that is this. Take refuge in the greater king who truly sits on the throne. Take refuge in the greater king. We can take refuge in Jesus this morning because he is an entirely different king, kind of king than that of Xerxes. I love how another pastor said it. He said it this way. Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes thought he was a man who became God, but only Jesus is a God who became man. Xerxes demanded that people come to him, that they come to his throne. Jesus came down off of his throne to come for us. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes may have been the most powerful man in the planet, but Jesus created that planet. 
and he rules over all things. Xerxes demonstrated his power through a sword, but Jesus demonstrated his power through a cross and an empty tomb. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from every nation. Xerxes thought he could throw a banquet, but there is one day where Jesus is going to throw a banquet for his people to which none can compare. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom has no end. And so church family... As you think about this text, more than anything else, here's what I want you to see, that no matter what your circumstances may look like in your life, from your limited perspective, there is a king who is on his throne, and he is working the events of your life, both good and bad, for his own glory, that his name would be known among the nations, that people from every tribe and tongue will know him, and that as we know him, we will be conformed into the image of his son. He is at work for your good and for his own glory. In his arms, when you take refuge in him, no enemy, no sin, no trial, no power, not even death itself can touch you. So this morning, may we as a church take refuge in the king who does sit on the throne.